All right, guys. Um, what an amazing spread that was provided for you this morning. Is that right or what? That is, uh, we want to make sure we thank um, Denny's wife, Barb, who made the egg casserole stuff. And um, Cass bought some muffins, and my wife made that blueberry stuff and some fruit. So, listen, up and down all morning, back and forth to the table to finish it off, okay? And uh, then you can take your coma nap later. <laughs> because you know you will. All right. Um, and um, thankfully, we. Got a new coffee maker, so we don't have to run and scramble. It, it leaks for whatever reason. It's new, but it leaks. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> leaks whatever's in it. <laughs> but it tastes all right, so we can't complain. All right, listen, I have... Um, uh, I want to uh, make sure that we go ahead and get started because we um, have lots to get through today. Um, you'll, let's take a look at your um, uh, little card there. And I, I exhorted Cass, not for your sake, well, maybe for some of your sakes, but I, I, I pleaded with her to please use larger font next time. <laughs> I'm finding that I have to more and more <laughs> move things. Um, just to prove how good my eyesight is. I can see it from here. Look at that. Uh, this is from Luther. Yeah, I can't do it if you put it there. Anyway. Luther says this, and, I, and I, I love this. He says, for a number of years, I have now annually read through the Bible twice. Okay? There's a guy who wants to get through the Bible twice in a year. If the Bible were a large, mighty tree and all its words were little branches, I have tapped at all the branches, eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. First I shake the whole tree that the ripest may fall. And then I climb the tree and I shake each limb and then each branch and then each twig and then I look under each leaf. That's the way he illustrated his pursuit of the Word of God and um, the God of the Word. So, guys, uh, we can only be better men if we uh, take that to heart and um, do the same ourselves. So, what I would like to do this morning is uh, go ahead and, and pray, and we're going to jump into Deuteronomy 6 and spend some uh, lengthy time uh, just taking a look at a, a really a foundational passage in regards to the heart and the home or the household relationship, we are, we are going to be um, uh, really talking about two, disciplines one and two this morning. It's not just discipline two, but they're both wed together here in this passage. So let's, uh, before we open God's word, let's, let's um, pray, let's ask for God's help as we look at his word, okay? Heavenly Father, we do um, love to be able to come to you in prayer and express our need to you and our desire for you and our worship of you as your Bible is open in front of us. And Father, we do worship you. You are the great God of this book. You are the great one who is revealed in this book from front to end. And, and your revelation of yourself comes to a glorious climax in Jesus Christ the Word who became flesh. 
And we don't want to miss him this morning. And we confess to you that we know that our flesh and the coldness of our hearts will prevent us from seeing him if we do not come to you and depend upon you to open our eyes and to warm our hearts. And so we draw near to you as we open your word and we plead with you to reveal yourself to us. What we need more than anything today, um, what our wives need more than anything today, what our children need more than anything today, what our roommates need more than anything today, is they need to see a man and be near a man who has been near to God in his word. And Lord, we want to be that kind of man. So would you please be merciful to us and cleanse us of our sin, wash us afresh in the blood of Christ. We remind ourselves of what you did at the cross. We remind ourselves of the gospel. That it is not by works that we have a relationship with you. We could do nothing to earn your favor. We could only earn your wrath. And we did. And your son, who is, was the man who could only have your favor upon him, was the one who took our wrath upon himself at the cross. Our guilt, our sin, and you atoned for our sin there. You carried away our guilt, our sin, our shame, and your wrath. And it is forever taken away. And when you look at us, you no longer see what once provoked you to anger. But now what you see is righteousness. The righteousness that pleases you. It is the righteousness of your Son, we cannot add to that righteousness. Though we live 200 years, we could not improve upon it. Though we sin greatly, we cannot diminish it in us. Thank you for making us secure because of the position you gave us. And now, Lord, help us to be faithful men, to practice in accordance with the position you have given us. Thank you that our, our relationship with you is not made or broken by our practice. It is made and never broken by the position you gave us. How firm our place in Christ is, untouchable, unassailable. And now God, with that same grace that put us there firmly, help us to persevere. Help us to have strength to, again, take a step towards you in your word this morning. Warm our hearts as we see the God of Israel, who is our God as well, in the church. So, Father, we plead with you to meet with us. We need you desperately. We worship you joyfully. And we study your word humbly so. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, take your Bibles. Let's open them up to Deuteronomy 6. And um, have your worksheet there in front of you. Discipline 1, the heart. And discipline to the home. God pulls all of these things together in Deuteronomy 6. Um, I have a statement for you that helps you summarize the book of Deuteronomy, help you see what the book of Deuteronomy is really all about. It's about, it's a very strong covenantal setting. God is the great king. He's the great Lord. Uh, you have to remind yourself of where this sits in redemptive history and what has been going on. Um, prior to this, you have God who went into Egypt 
to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he went there by grace. God went into Egypt, and you're going to see this, you'll be stunned by the grace of God in Egypt, that he would go and that he would um, deliver Israel, not because they were a spotless, shiny bunch, but he went there to get them because he himself made promises that he himself was going to keep, and he did it by grace. His promises were not given to Israel on the basis of their good works that they did. God has never been that way, and he will never be that way. Um, and he brought them out, and he made a covenant with them. And underneath that covenant that he made with them, the promises that he made with them, even at Mount Sinai in the Mosaic Covenant, underneath all of that was grace. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And so this is the covenantal setting where Moses is over and over again before they go into the land. He's saying, remember the covenant God made with you. The Mosaic Covenant portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they became his people. There's no doubt after Mount Sinai who Israel was and who they belonged to and who their God was and whom he was committed to. There was no doubt. Okay? There's an outline of the book there for you. You can see that Deuteronomy 6 obviously <clears throat> sets in the covenant life section from chapter 5 through 26. And now let's talk about what I call here the blazing center in verse 4. Um, we're in that time of year where you'll start turning your heat on um, at some point when 90 degree temperatures leave us in November. But at some point you'll turn the heat on if you haven't already, and you know the room that is closest to the furnace, right? How do you know the room that's closest to the furnace? It's the warmest. Why is it the warmest? Because the air coming out of the furnace is what? Immediately coming out of it is the hottest. The room that is on the farthest part of the house, away from the furnace, is the coldest because by the time the air gets all the way away from the furnace, it's lost its heat. That illustration is appropriate, I think, for what God is saying here. Israel has a blazing center, has a, a blazing furnace, and it is God. And Moses is trying to impress that upon Israel here in the early verses of uh, Deuteronomy 6, and in particular in verse 4. Let's take a look at it there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is, is called the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear. Hear me. Now that word hear um, includes the intent to live under what you hear. It is not a, hey, listen to that sound. Do you hear it? Yeah, I hear it. Okay, let's move on. It's not that kind of listen. It's not that kind of hearing. It, the call here to hear is to listen with the intent of living under what you hear, it's with the intent to order all the rest of your life around this one who is the blazing center of Israel. It's the intent to obey, um, and it's in the light of all that God has done for them, okay? Uh, it's in light of the covenant that he has made with them. Because God went into Egypt and because he redeemed them with a strong hand and because then he made promises to them and he said, now you promise me that you'll obey me based on what I've done for you. Now, hear me with the intent of obeying me. Um, 
them. So there is a strong foundation of grace underneath this call to obey. This is not a call from God to Israel to say, hear me with the intent to obey so that you get my attention and I respond to you in grace or favor. It is not works-oriented stuff that's going on here. There has been so much grace underneath this already that the only thing that can come out next after grace is, it's time to obey me. And it is the same way in Jesus Christ for us. Grace in the gospel, grace in the gospel, grace in the gospel, God making promises, God coming to us and delivering us out of our slavery in Christ, laying a strong, solid foundation of grace, 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 and finally, eventually, inevitably, undoubtedly, you get to obedience. Because that's what grace does. Grace does not come into your life to leave you so that you don't obey. You don't have to be afraid of more grace in your life, of preaching more grace in the gospel to your life. It will not make you become uh, an antinomian, somebody who's lawless, who says, I don't care about law, I'll just go live any way I want to because of God's grace. That is a faulty understanding of grace. Grace is powerful, and grace moves you to obey because grace gives you a new heart that actually wants to obey, where you never had that, new, that heart before to obey. That's another sermon for another time. So I've got a quote for you there um, from Merrill. To hear in Hebrew lexicography, in, in Hebrew word study, is, a, is tantamount to obey, especially in covenant contexts such as this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is to not hear him at all. Does that make sense? So then to hear um, means you're going to listen closely for the purpose of obeying, um, they must become determined, Israel must, to know what God has said in order to conform their beliefs and their behavior accordingly. Now, is there any kind of a principle like this in the New Testament for us in the church? Making sure that you hear with the intent of obeying? James what? James chapter 1. I want you to keep your hand in Deuteronomy and flip over to James. I want you to see that God has not changed. He is the same way. James chapter 1, verse 21. Now nah, verse 22. Now nah, verse 21. Sorry. James 1, 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves <clears throat> for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror for once he has looked at himself and gone away he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was but the one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty and abides by it not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer this man will be blessed in what he does so the principle still exists in the New Testament for us. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The last half of verse 4. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is probably the most potent and succinct um, summary of God who redeemed this people Israel up to this point in the Bible. I mean, if you could ask Moses how he would summarize God thus far in the shortest amount of words possible, he would say, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's what he would say. Hey, come get some food. You've got to come see them. I do. 
Do you want them? I'll give them to you if you go eat some food. <laughs> so Moses here is, is saying, I want to show you who God is. I'm going to retell you who God is. He is the blazing center of your life. Um, his point is to make such a big deal about God and his uniqueness and his oneness that if they take this one unique God out of their midst, they, in the wilderness, if they take God out of their lives in the wilderness, they will grow cold. And especially once they get into the, uh, the, the promised land and they are surrounded by nations who have all kinds of other gods, you remove that God from your midst, Israel, and you will instantly freeze. So there's hope for you if you keep yourself near this God. Now, the last half of verse 4 has two possible translations. They're not much different. If you have the New American Standard, the NIV, or the English Standard Version, um, you find it, that it says, The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Um, the second possibility is to say it this way, a little bit differently. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Now, the first way of saying it, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, that stresses more his uniqueness. He's our God, he is the only God. He is the exclusive Yahweh. There is no other God like him. He is the one and only Yahweh. The second way of saying it, the Lord our God is one Lord, stresses his unity, stresses his wholeness of, of being God. He's not a schizophrenic split God. He's one God. And the ideas clearly overlap. The Lord is indeed a united being over Israel, and there is no other God except this united one being. And his name is Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. Macintosh says in that quote there, all the grammatical possibilities point in the same direction. They point to the uniqueness and the supremacy of Yahweh, God of Israel. The unity of God is stressed. God's distance from the invented deities of the nations is stressed. Israel's strength lying not only in the worship of Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of Yahweh. And you see, this is where Israel got into so much trouble in their past. They would say over and over, oh, we'll serve Yahweh. We will. Prophets, it's okay, we'll serve Him. We're not going to give up Baal. We're not going to give up the high places. We're not going to give up the Ashtoreth. We're not going to give up Moloch. But we'll worship the Lord too. And what Moses is saying here is, based on what I have just summarized God as, you can't do that. Because He is one God. He is the only God. He is unique and He is supreme. He is exclusive. Israel, stay near the furnace. You move away from the furnace, it gets cold really fast. Now why is this so important for Moses to say at this point? Well, think about what's behind them. Where have they been for 400 years? Egypt. Growing as a nation. And they were in a nation that had many gods. Now, keep your hand in Deuteronomy 6, and I want you to turn to Ezekiel 20. God gives to us an amazing description of what he says he found when he went to Egypt to get Israel. Ezekiel 20, verse 5. This is what God found when he went to Egypt to fulfill his promises. Say to them, verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, 
On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of God, uh, in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Now watch this. I said to them when they were in Egypt, Cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me, and they did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. God's giving us some information here that we don't see in Exodus. He was going to finish them in Egypt. He had every right to finish them in Egypt. But, verse 9, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes, and I informed them of my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Sanctifies them. Do you see that? Why was the law given? And in particular, the Sabbath? Sanctification. Mosaic law was never given for salvation, to save them. It was given to set them apart. By the way, the law of Christ for us, is it given to save us? The instructions that he gives us, the regulations he gives us? Nope. They're given to sanctify us. That's God's principle. Right, where were we? Verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me, even in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths were greatly profaned. And then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. So in Egypt, I'm going to annihilate them? No, I can't. I'm a, I'm a merciful God. I won't. In the wilderness, I'm going to annihilate them. No, I won't do it. I'm a merciful God. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose side I had brought them out. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Why? Because they rejected my ordinances, and as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Now, is this by grace or what? It's by grace, isn't it? That's what God found. That's what was behind them. And that describes where they're at now. What's in front of them? Well, in fact, you know what? <clears throat> Let me show you something interesting. Let, go, go to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now think about, think about what, what book this is. Think about where this is now in, in this point of redemptive history. Joshua is the one that took them into the promised land, right? And we're at the end of Joshua. We're at the end, we're at the last chapter. And so they are in the land. They have distributed the, the land to the different tribes. And Joshua's an old man. He's, he's about to die. And he is giving them one last exhortation. So they've been in the land. They're in the promised land. Territories are portioned out. 
verse uh, 14. Watch what Joshua says to them. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods. Which gods? The gods which your father served beyond the river. That's the river Euphrates. Well, who was that? Which of the fathers lived beyond the Euphrates? It was Abraham. Abraham had idols too. And the gods which your father served in Egypt and served the Lord. You're in the promised land and they're still what? Still got idols. Verse 23. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord. Um, this is the kind of people that need a statement given to them that says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. There are no other gods. There, this is the only God, the one God. He's united in his being, in his person, and there are no other gods. And where are they headed? In front of them, the place God's people are about to go, it's a, it's a land full of gods. It's full of bales. Israel's blazing center could not be more distinct, more uncommon, more unlike all of the gods that surround them. The gods that are behind them in Egypt, the gods that are way over beyond the river Euphrates, and the gods of the people who are in the promised land. No god anywhere had come to a nation like this god came to Israel. No god separated one nation out from within another nation and delivered them to make them his own. No god anywhere had done that. Now back to Deuteronomy 6. Again, the air closest to the output from a furnace is the hottest. And if Israel will stay near to this God, its blazing center, there is hope that her commitment in the covenant with God will, will stand and stay warm. So then, making a statement like that is, is a powerful thing to say. Now, what's the first thing on this God's mind? This one God, what's on his mind for his people? Look at verse 5. And this takes us to discipline one, the heart. In your notes, discipline one. What's the first thing on his mind? Love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You shall love me. That's what's on this God's mind. Love for him at the heart level. And it's a love that consumes the whole heart. This is totally unique. The gods of Egypt, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Philistines, the Hittites, none of those gods ever communicated any request like this, any command like this to its devotees. In fact, there's a great quote from Matthew Henry. He says, Did ever any prince make a law that his subject should love him? And yet such is the uh, condescension of the divine grace that this is made the first and great commandment of God's law, that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. Now what is meant here by loving him with all the heart, the soul, and the might? What is meant here? Uh, well, let me tell you what God's intent is not. God's intent is not to send us on a splicing analysis assignment of ourselves. Israel, and those of us in Christ's command, this is repeated, we are not to go run over there and look for our heart, as if our heart is found over there, 
And once we find it, we, we try to love God with all of that. And then once we've done that, we, we go run over some other place and we find our soul, which is over here, not over there. And we, we try to gather all of that up that we can and, and we love God with all of that. And then we leave that place and we go to a third different place over here where our might is. It's not over there and it's not over there. Our might is here and we gather all of, all of our might and we love Him with all of that. That is not what He is saying to do. In fact, He's doing just the opposite here of trying to splice us into pieces. He's doing the opposite. He's, he's actually unifying us. He's gathering all that a man is, and he's using different words to describe all that a man is. Your heart. If God gets the heart, he has all of the man. If God gets the soul, he has all of the life of the man. If God gets his strength, he has all of the man. That's the idea. And Macintosh says in that quote there on, on, on the strength side, strength is not so much a person's physical power as it is his intensity. God wants earnestness in a person's love for him. He desires not merely that we possess a faith, but that our faith should possess us. What, what we feel towards God, what we have towards God, it should possess us with might, with strength. Now, i got a question for you. We are in the midst and then at the heart of Mosaic Law. Now let me ask you a question. When you think of Mosaic Law most of the time, is the first thing that comes to your mind love? Why? Because what's the first thing that came to God's mind? Love. You see, we have been so conditioned and wrongly taught to think about the Old Testament and to think about law, especially Mosaic Law. You know, you, there's all kinds of uh, great divides that good Christian people put between their testaments. You see, in the Old Testament, it was about works. And Jesus is about grace. Lie from the pit. Lie from the pit. You know, in the Old Testament, it was about works, and it was God was a stern God. In the New Testament, he's a God of love. Another lie from the pit. The first thing that was on God's mind when he was calling his people to him and reminding him of of what, uh, who he was as her God was, love me. Love me. You see, God's people, Israel, they weren't guilty before God, first and foremost, because they broke dietary laws. And because they broke social laws and they broke sacrificial laws, or even that they broke the Ten Commandments before God. That's not why they were first and foremost guilty before God. Why were they first and foremost guilty before God? They did not what? They didn't love God. And as a result of not loving him, they didn't care about any of his commands. Dietary, sacrificial, social, even the Ten Commandments. In God's mind, love has always been his issue. The, the closest idea I could give to you or illustration I could give to you of um, a kind of a covenant setting where love is so strong, I think is, is a marriage relationship, a wedding day. Um, that's probably in our day probably the only place where you even think about a covenant anymore covenant being made. The marriage covenant in a wedding ceremony, it is full of vows, promises, pledges to keep and do what you say you're going to do. I say over and over, will you? And they say, I will. Will you? I will. Will you do this? I will do that. Will you not forsake her? I won't forsake her. Law, law, rule, rule, will you, will you, I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, on that day, 
why on the wedding day does no bride object to these rules? On her wedding day, why does no bride hear those vows and think, oh, this is so law-like? Why does she not think that? Why? Because everywhere underneath her and around her and surrounding her and in her is love. This guy loves me and I love him. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. You see? Covenant setting full of love and a whole bunch of laws. The command from God to love, it reflects something to us of his heart. It reveals to us his attitude that he wants us to have towards him. Now, is this the first time love shows up? I remember when I, when I first studied this, I thought, oh my goodness. We're in, we're in the Pentateuch. We're in Deuteronomy. And um, where is the first place that love shows up? Any ideas? I'll give you a line. And then you tell me if you can place it. Now I know that you love me. Abraham with Isaac, Genesis 22. So, Mosaic Law did not invent love for God. God's idea, even before Mosaic Law came on the scene, was that you love me, Abraham. When I'm in a covenant relationship with you, when I make promises to you, my heart's desire is you love me. And now, Abraham, I know you love me. Even above your son, your one and only son. Now Mosaic Law comes along and God hasn't changed. He's a God who wants his people to love him. And so he gives them Mosaic Law and it is a means by which, a tool they can use to express their love for him. Right? Now Christ comes along and when he died on the cross, we know he fulfilled everything Mosaic Law was pointing to and he fulfilled it so he could abolish it. Ephesians 2. Now, with the ending of Mosaic Law, did God's desire for his people to love him end? No, because that's just who God is. He, loved, he wanted people to love him before Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law comes, he wants his people to love him. Mosaic Law gets set aside, and God what? We still love him. Christ brought forward this great command, didn't he? He said, that one was good. You know why it was good? Not because it was invented at Sinai, but because it captured the heart of God for his people to love him that always has been there. And so let's bring it forward. I'll bring it to my blood and you obey it from me under my blood. Not from here. From your New Testament. Now go to John 14. John 14. I want you to see something that Jesus says to his disciples that they would not have missed. If we could get into, if we could get into their sandals and um, put ourselves in their situation. John 14, 21. Familiar passage. Jews would have known the Shema from being a little tight. Some of the first words out of your mouth would have been, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. They would have said that. And now listen, there's a rabbi in their midst that they've been following for three years, and now what does he say to them? Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps, him, uh, keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? 
Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I got a quote there from Macintosh for you. He said, Jesus would later insist in John 14, 21, that we love him. And if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And his disciples could hardly have missed the point of the statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. Yahweh is in their midst. Now you remember Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. You can write that down. That's Jesus repeating uh, the greatest commandment and that there is a second like it. I want to show you um, a couple of other passages in regards to love in the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. The end of 1 Corinthians. It's in Paul's um, benediction. 1 Corinthians 16. He says in verse 21, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. And then verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. What's the expectation? What's the teaching in the New Testament? You'll love the Lord. Go to Ephesians 6, the benediction there. Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Ephesians 6.24 Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. One more that I want to just spend a little bit of time on. Go back to John 21. Oh, there was a young, fiery disciple of Jesus. And you know what he, you know what he loved to do with Jesus? He loved to make promises to Jesus. He loved to make promises to Jesus. He pledged all kinds of action to Jesus. Even though all others fall away from you, I'm ready to die with you. I promise. Well, we know what happened to this fiery disciple, Peter, right? He blew it. Not once, not twice, but three times. And in John 21... He finally says, you know, I'm not really sure that there's really any use me keeping following this Jesus. I'm going to go back and do what I haven't done for three years. I'm going to go back to what I was before he came into my life. I'm going fishing. And he drug a couple of their disciples, and he was an absolute failure at it that night. And you know what happens? There's a figure on the beach standing there, and... Um, he calls out to them and says, hey, you, you guys caught anything? Nah, no, not a thing. All night long, we cut fish, we got nothing. And, and then the figure says something crazy. Hey, well, put your net on the other side of the boat. Now think about it. You're a fisherman. There's not one guy in that boat that goes, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> they all, of course, you throw the net any which direction. And they did that all night long. And he just said, no, just go on the other side because... You see, there's this whole school of fish down there that I've commanded just to wait. They're just waiting for the net. So they do, they pull up, there's so many fish, the boat begins to sink. John says, it's the Lord. Who else would it be? Peter is stripped down for work. He puts his clothes on, he jumps in the water. Swims and he comes. Jesus is seeking out this one. 
who made all kinds of pledges, all kinds of promises to him. And we know his famous interaction with him in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, the, the great promiser, Simon, son of John, will you stop being so foolish now? You, you just bug me that you do this all the time. Promises, promises. Will you start now making better promises? Will you? Peter, man, you've got to get some accountability around you. You have to. What is Jesus doing here? He is bringing Peter, the one who has failed miserably, and this is so good for us because that's us, right? He is bringing Peter back to what is the foundational part on Peter's side of the relationship with God. And he's saying, let me bring you back to what is foundational. It's not that you make better promises to me, and it's not that you have greater accountability from your accountability partners. What, is, what matters more than anything is you remember <coughs> that you love me. Do you love me? And he counteracted Peter's three denials with three questions of love. Do you love me? Now, why did he ask that? Because, again, that is at the heart of Peter's side of the equation in the relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it is for all disciples. Guys, do you love him? Are you a man that loves Jesus Christ? And there's nothing you need to think on and remember more when you have fallen and failed miserably than, you know what? Lord, I do love you. And that's what Peter said, you know. You know I do. It doesn't look like it, but you know I do. You know better than I do. I, I do love you. The foundation of your relationship with Jesus Christ is love. It has always been that way with God's people. And Peter needed to remember that, and, and men like you and me, we need to remember that. Men who like to make big promises to God, God, I will never do that again. Before you make those promises, come back to love and express that to God. I love you, God. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. God's people Israel, who are warmed by their blazing center, they discover that God has provided for them a means by which their all-consuming love for him might be kept up. God has given to them a means by which they can keep their love for him up, that they can maintain their love for him, they can promote their love for him, they can nurture their love for him. Um, they, they have something from him that will help their love for God not wither and undergo decay. What is it? Verse 6, these words. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Love at the heart level and words given to you to take to the heart. Those words have to be advanced to the heart and find their rest in place, their dwelling place in the heart. That was God's intent back then. This is God's intent in Christ. Write down Luke 8, verses 9 to 15. Luke 8, 9 to 15, it's his parable on the soils. The, the seed is the word, right? The word of the gospel of the kingdom. And as he explains the parable, what does he say? The word lands on the... 
soil in the parable, but when he explains it, he says the word, what? Lands on the heart, and the devil comes and he snatches away the word from the, from the heart. And so Jesus' thought is the same as what God's thought was back with Israel, and that is my words about the kingdom, they need to come into contact with your heart. This is discipline one, right? Write down Luke 24, verse 32. This is Jesus raised from the dead talking with his disciples. The two that he had been walking with and he gave them that gentle rebuke. Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer? And then later he vanishes once they figure out who he is. He's out, taken out of their midst and they say, hey, we're not our hearts burning within us as he was speaking to us on the road you see that was Jesus intent that his words that he was speaking to them from Moses and the prophets would burn their hearts and write down Hebrews 4 verses 12 to 13 remember we studied that the word of God is what living and active it's sharper than any two-edged sword it's capable of going all the way down and judging between the thoughts and the intentions of the Heart. The word, God, his intent has always been that his words come into contact with our hearts. A quote there from Matthew Henry, he says, God's words must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them, with those words, and employed, set to work about those words. And thereby um, the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of those words. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart. For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts both as an evidence and as an effect of that love and as a means to preserve it and increase it. He that loves God loves his Bible. And that is what discipline one is all about. In the church, a spiritual leader, guys, is someone who is constantly bringing his own heart to the word of God. He doesn't have to be told over and over and over to do that. Sure, sure, there are times in his life when he needs reminders. I need reminders. I pray you guys will help me remember to do this. But we go to the Word of God so that God will reveal himself to us through those words. And the spiritual leader's love for God gets fanned into a big flame because we're near the blazing furnace. And then we just find ourselves being led right back to the Word from that love because we want to now even obey. So we are guided into proper expressions of obedience to Jesus Christ through his word in the gospel. All Christians are to be that way. All Christian men are to be that way. All Christian men are to be that way, but especially the Christian men who lead the other Christian men. We must be well disciplined in this by his grace. That's discipline one, the heart. Discipline two, the home in verses seven to nine. Israel was to take these words and to advance them even beyond the father. These are primarily words to the, to the parents, to the father. And the, the words were, of God were to be on the father's heart, but they were to advance those words even beyond the father into his home. Look at verse 7. Teach them, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now let's just talk about that first um, 
phrase, teach them diligently. I have two quotes for you there by Matthew Henry and um, Eugene Merrill. The idea there of teach them diligently is this. Frequently repeat these things to them. Frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds. That's the idea of the diligent side. That's why we put our English word diligently in with this verb. And make them pierce into their hearts as if in sharpening a knife it's first turned on this side as you sharpen it and then it's turned on this side and you when you sharpen a knife you do that over and you do that over and you do it over and over and over and over and over and your instruction to your children men of Israel is to be the same way do it over and over and over and over and over and over um, the image is that of the engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and a chisel in hand and with painstaking care, he etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. That's Merrill's quote. Is there a lot of work in doing that? Oh my goodness, I can't imagine chiseling into rock words. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. Fathers in Israel, sacrifice yourself. Labor diligently to get those words on those hearts in the home. If, if you do it and, and invest yourself, they'll stay there for a long time. So, how would we summarize so far? God's intent for Israel was that they were to come into direct contact with God himself, right? The blazing center in and through his words. Which would then enable them to pour forth their own heated love for God. And then those precious words were to be advanced everywhere beyond the Father into the household. Can you imagine the nation that this should have been? Could have been. He says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you sit and when you walk. Israel was upon any occasion within the home or outside the home. They were to impress the word of God on their children. Those who were in their home, it didn't matter who was there. It was to happen in the occasions of inactivity where you were just sitting and resting. It was to happen in the occasions of activity where you were walking or working. Look what it says in verse 7 also. Do this when you um, lie down and when you rise up. At the end of the day and at the beginning of the day. The bookends on your daily life are to be characterized by the Father impressing the Word of God home upon the heart and the mind of those in the home. And then the Israelite was to go even further in verses 8 and 9. In fact, most commentators believe in verses 8 and 9, I think they're really scared by this actually being literal. Certainly you could do this literally in verses 8 and 9 and you can do it for all the wrong reasons. I think it's also possible that you could do it literally for all the right reasons. Look what it says. You shall bind them, these words, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So they figured out a way to put little tassels on the ends of their garment that reminded them of the words. Obviously it was a very short summary of the word. Especially if it's hanging between your eyes, little box that had a little, little, little leather box that had engraved words of the Shema on it. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You think, what in the wide world of sports is God doing? <laughs> Agricultural society, 
society where you work with your hands and you got tassels hanging all over where your hands are. So you reach for your, your working instrument and what's in the way? Oh yeah, God's Word. You walking along and there's this little thing bouncing on your forehead. Doing work and it's moving around, it's bouncing all over. What is that? Oh yeah, God's Word. What's the heart behind this? Macintosh and Spurgeon caught the heart behind the command. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. That's the first thing to not miss. God was concerned that this happened to individuals in Israel. An individual was to put these on his hands and on his forehead. It wasn't something corporately that they somehow all did together. No, individuals did this. So the commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites and they were to serve as constraints on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of this authority. Spurgeon said it this way, you shall see by these words, um, you shall see with these words, and you shall see through these words. I mean, it's like God saying, look, I don't want you to touch anything in your day without having to think about my word. I don't want you to look at anything without having to look through my word. My word, my laws become your grid through which you look at everything. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Um, Merrill's comment is this. The form of the commandment is, in any case, most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of covenant claim to the house and then to the village. In this manner, the person, and then his entire family, and then the entire community became identified as the people of the Lord. And the way that you knew that this was the people of the Lord was his words were everywhere. They were on the individual. They were on the family, on the house. They were, they were in the community. And again, can you imagine what a nation this would have been? Could have been. All right, there's Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Last page. We don't live in the wilderness, and we don't live in the promised land. We live under Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the church. Let's remind ourselves of a couple of things in the Old Testament, okay? Or, I'm sorry, in the New Testament. Uh, we went through this last time together, all one, two, three, four, five, six of these, so I'm going to only give you a summary, a quick summary of all of them, okay? I just want to remind you of, of what has not changed. In the early days of the church, the impact that one person made on their entire household was huge. And that confirms to us that their, God's heart for what he expressed in the Mosaic Covenant, his heart is now expressing it in the Gospel and the New Covenant. One person made a huge impact on the family. Acts 10 is Cornelius. One man's faith changed the whole household. Well, God changed the household through the one man, right? Acts 16 is Lydia. Her whole household was changed in Philippi. Later in Acts 16, 22 to 34, the Philippian jailer, he gets saved and his whole household does as well. Just 
one person's interaction with the gospel made a profound impact on the entire household. And these narratives don't give you, I mean, and these narratives give you the impression that that was like the very first thing that happened. Believe in Jesus, the family comes and hears about it. I mean, there's no space between repent and believe and the family hears about it. The, these narratives don't give you any indication that, that any one of them believed and then leapfrogged right over the house. The intent in these narratives is that an individual believed and the household was impacted. You see that? What about the attack on the home? Maybe we should look at these. I want you to go to 2 Timothy 3, please. Because these are so important. Paul's instruction to the church, in particular, verse 6. At the end of verse 5, we're told to avoid such men as are described in verses 3, 1 to 5. And he says, For among these men are those who enter into households, remember this, and captivate weak women. Those weak women are women who are weighed down with sins. They are women who are led on by various impulses. These are women who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Go to Titus 1. Next book to the right. Maybe just a page turning. Verse 10. Why do you need elders in your, in your church who hold fast, verse 9, the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both um, exhort um, in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Why? Well, because there's a reason for that. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Listen, there is a massive, there should be no surprise at all that there's an attack on the home, especially among the church. There should be no surprise. Why? Because that's where we're supposed to go and make an impact with the gospel. And notice in Titus 1 especially, where did the attack come from? Where did it come from? Did it come? I'll give you two options. A, raw pagans. Or B, spiritual religious people. Your biggest threat to your home will not be uh, probably MTV. Although that's a threat. <laughs> I'm sure. The biggest threat is the stuff you can buy in a Christian bookstore, or what you can hear on the radio, or what you can watch on channel 20-whatever. And be careful of what will creep in your home. And the question that you have to ask in those two passages is, where are the men? Where are the spiritual leaders? Where are the guys who care about the gospel? with humility, you practice this shepherding care now, no matter where you live, no matter whom you live with. Let me remind you of the third bullet point there. The family, the home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Those three passages there are just Jesus helping people as they are considering following him. He's helping them to say, look, the gospel first, family second. You can notice that it's so important to shepherd your home. Oh, we got to get there. That you could get overbalanced or go too far the other way and set the family too high. And so there needs to be this corrective here. But the family, it can actually be an obstacle to the gospel. The gospel must be above the family. So you have to work hard in your family as you pour your attention 
into and your care into the family, that you're constantly always doing it with the gospel because that will help you keep everything submitted under the gospel. Balance is necessarily. Don't conclude from any of this importance and emphasis on the family that the family should take a higher place than actually God determines it to be. Just a reminder, in the church, leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel. What is the instruction to the man in Ephesians 5? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that means there is a presupposition here, an assumption from Paul, that men, if you're going to marry a woman, you understand the gospel. In fact, you understand it from so many different angles that you can step into a relationship 24-7 and you can think of ways in which you can actually love her in the same manner as which Christ loved us at the cross. I mean, guys, you've got to have a grasp on the gospel if you want to get married. And what girl, what godly single woman would want to put herself under a man who's clueless about it? There's a New Testament model for marriage. It's Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18 and in Romans 16. Paul says they risked their necks for the gospel. I love that. Husband and wife risking their necks for the gospel. And then lastly, let's go to uh, 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, we'll just look at the qualifications, which is in discipline 4 of build. Verse 4 of 1 Timothy 3, these are the qualifications for elders. The elder must be one who manages his own household well. Where does God's heart directing him? the household. Now, does that mean that God's heart is only that elders need to be concerned about their household, but the body of Christ at large doesn't? Oh, no, no, of course not. I mean, what we're saying is, is if, if this is true of the leaders of the people, the idea is that the people who follow those will follow them in those things. So, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's faithfulness in the smaller so that there can be faithfulness in the greater. The deacon qualifications is the same thing. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Guys, you cannot afford to ignore your household. Do not play leapfrog over your heart. Don't play leapfrog then over your household relationships because you want to get to ministry. Oh, you want to be about serving people and ministering to people. That's what you want. Don't play leapfrog over. There's two very crucial, important steps that must be have your feet solidly on them before you even get there and think about getting there. And that is the gospel in your heart, the gospel in your home. And at Grace Bible Church, what we want to see is we want to see in you men a well-engraved pattern, ingrained pattern of discipline one, shepherding your heart, and shepherding your home and your life. We want to see that. We want to see evidence of that in your life. We want to see that evidence of God's grace in your life. That's what's important to God. That's what's impressive to God, and it's impressive to us. So, there you have it. Discipline two. Now, what I want to do is I want you to take a five-minute break, and then I want to come back, and I want to um, exhort the single men with the married men and fathers present.
and then we'll do a little small group time, okay? Take a five minute break. can change your heart, but I'm still telling you to repent anyways. You still have responsibility, man, to make a choice and to make a decision, and that's what God's doing. So we just call dude to repent. You know these truths? Repent. That's what God's telling you to do. God's not telling you to wait around until he controls and makes you do something. Point is, 
guys, please pull back together. Um, I don't know if you want to write anything down on this. I don't have a worksheet for you. If you want to turn your one sheet over, if you've got a blank side, you can. Um, but the question always comes, um, yeah, yeah, but what about if you're single? But yeah, I understand what you're saying. This whole you know, discipline to the home, the household. Yeah, I got you on that. I see that in scripture, I see that, but it's primarily for fathers and husbands. Um, what about me who uh, is not a father yet and not a husband yet? Um, let me just remind you of, of some things that we've seen in, in the heart of God in scripture. Obviously God's heart in scripture is that the father and the husband would bring God and his word to bear on the lives of those who are in the household, right? Can we conclude that? That's obvious from God's word. Um, and that is one of God's favorite means by which he brings the gospel to the next generation. He loves to do it in the home. He loves to do it in the home. And um, the man who is best prepared to do that, bringing the word of God to bear on his home, is the man who has already shepherded his heart and is shepherding his heart to God in the word. Because that man is so full of God in his word that everyone just gets it spilled on on them because of what he is. I mean, it's like, you know, you fill the cup of milk up so high that it's just it's cresting over and you're going to make a mess. You're just going to make a mess if you move. And we need to be that kind of men so that our family gets a little milk on from us. The next generation in that home, what do they hear from that man? All they hear of is the greatness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. From that man. That's all they hear. That's all they see. And if a man doesn't shepherd his heart in that way, he really doesn't have much to say to his family or to those who are in the home. So we know that to be true. And then I want to ask us again, just in thinking about this, is, is there any wonder then that there's not an attack on the home? We know why the devil goes after the home with false teaching. We know that. Second Timothy 3 showed us that. And um, Titus 1 and the man who, listen to this, guys, this is so important. The man who doesn't shepherd his heart and who therefore can't expose his household relationships to the greatness of God in the gospel, that man leaves his household vulnerable to spiritual error. I'm going to say that again. The man who doesn't shepherd his heart toward the greatness of God in the gospel is unable to make an impact on his family with the greatness of God in the gospel, and therefore he leaves them vulnerable to error. Whole families were upset. Households were being turned over to error. So guys, your prayer must be that God would advance his gospel deeply into your own heart first. Okay guys, it's gotta be that. 
And then you pray that God would advance that gospel deeply into your household relationships. And your prayer is that, God, I am completely a knucklehead, but would you please use me? I don't want to shirk my responsibility. God, make me into the right kind of man who will do this. So then the question becomes, okay, so what if you're single? I mean, do you get a pass on this, guys, if you're single until you're married? Or if you never get married, you never, you're exempt from this. Well, you are exempt from loving your wife like Christ loved the church, to a degree, right? I mean, you can't love a woman who's not your wife who doesn't in your home. But are you exempt from this? Well, let me ask you this. What if you're single and you're living at home? Can I make a suggestion and some practical advice um, for you guys, some things to try? If you're living at home, you know, it's time to come alongside Dad and help him create and advance a gospel atmosphere in the home. If you're a single guy and you live at home, it's time to do that. Ask your dad, Dad, what can I do to help you shepherd this family closer to the gospel? Help your dad. Take some ownership of that. Um, and practice faithfulness there in that setting before you have dreams of being faithful anywhere else. Okay? But what if you're single and you just live with roommates? You're out of the house. You don't live with your parents anymore. You've got roommates. It's time for you, um, I would suggest and exhort, to demonstrate faithfulness in that setting with the gospel, in the little things, before God brings to you the the so-called bigger things like a wife and children. So in other words, now, among those roommates, bring an aroma of love for God in His Word, love for the Gospel. And let that aroma pour into all of your relationships there. So impact and influence those around you with your heart for God. And you say, but why? I mean, that, that dude I live with is not my wife. And praise God, he's not your wife. <laughs> okay, right? Yeah, that's a good word, isn't it? <laughs> so then, if, if you would say, yeah, but I'm not married to that guy, and I'm not called to shepherd him like I'm called to shepherd my wife someday, so why, why should I be thinking about it now? So then I would say to you in response to that, that well then, what you're saying is, is, is that you, you won't be a gospel leader with these guys, but you will someday with your wife? You won't be faithful now with the gospel in these relationships under the roof of this house, but someday in another house under a roof, the forever roommate that you get, you'll be the man of God then. Is that what you're saying? I mean, I don't think that sounds very wise. I think that sounds scary. Um, What confidence do you have that you will do it then if you won't do it now? What confidence do you have that you'll do it then if you won't do it now? And, you, and a guy could say, and I've heard, I've heard guys say this to me, I'll do it when the really important relationship comes. Really? Is that being faithful with the gospel and the little things? All the while being convinced that, you know, someday my wife and I will be Aquila and Priscilla, risking our necks for the gospel. Right now I'd like to strangle the necks of my roommates. 
<laughs> but someday my wife and I, we will risk our necks for the gospel. Let me ask you another question, single guys. How would you expect a godly woman to respond to what she sees in a single man if that single man lives that way with his roommates, not concerned to bring the gospel to them? Oh, these guys just... You have no idea what it's like to live on this roof. Now let's go out to eat, honey. Do you think she's going to have all kinds of warm fuzzies? Oh man, I can hardly wait to get under the same roof with that guy someday. But how would you expect her to respond to a single man she sees um, doing everything he can to impact the relationships that are under the roof with him? I think that young godly woman will say, you know, I'd like to experience his gospel leadership under a roof someday. If, if he can be that way with those guys, huh, I'd like to see what he, how he would treat a godly woman. And I would have given anything to have known this 20 years ago. And God is gracious to sinners. And marriage is last in spite of us. Oh, but guys, if you can know this before, please know it before and live it before. Do it now. Now let me talk to you as a, as a father. I have two daughters and one son. And I already know now that Jesus is not um, going to allow my daughters to marry anyone because he's coming back before <laughs> they date. I had somebody else tell me that, that they, that was their hope and dream, and it, God didn't listen to them. And so anyway, but here's what I'm going to do. If a single man someday is interested in one of my daughters, and he comes to me, and he comes to the house, the first thing I'm going to do, and I open the door, and I invite him in, I'm going to say, come on over here, I'm cleaning my gun. <laughs> and then we're going to talk, and then I'm going to say, here, put this apple on your head. <laughs> and hold real still. I'm not going to do that. But you know what? I'm going to have a question. You know what my questions are going to be for him? My questions are going to be this um, how, are, how are you shepherding your heart? Tell me about what you do with your heart and, and the Word of God. I'm going to ask that question. Because everything comes out of that question. Everything comes out of that question. What am I going to talk to my kids about, my daughters and my son? At some point when I see and have a, whatever assurance of, of salvation in them and his work in them, I, I pray that I'll have wherewithal to say, your heart must meet with God in his word. And you must be a, a young woman full of God in his word. And you must be a young man. Everything flows from that. And anybody who comes to my family from the outside interested in one of the members of my family, I'm going to ask the same question. Tell me about your heart and the Word of God. How are you shepherding your heart? One of my other questions I'm going to ask him is, who do you live with? Oh, I live at home. What's your dad's number? What's your sister's number? Oh, my little sister, she's a pain. Oh, really? She's the one I want to talk to. <laughs> what does your mother think about you in the house? Who do you live with? I just live with a couple of knuckleheads over at ASU. You know, it's not even, you know. 
Well, really, how's it going there? Can I come over and hang out with you? I want to see. I want to see the aroma that comes off the young man. You know, as a Christian father, I, I have, and you, you guys who are, are in this point, you know that, and, and those of you who hope to be someday, this is true. I mean, you have, you've been given by God shepherding care and oversight over your family, over your children. And you should not release them, if it's at all possible for you to, until you are confident to release them. Sometimes things happen beyond your control and wills are what wills are and little ones and, and things happen. But if you have an opportunity to be the shepherding influence over them and you can say when the day is that you let go, you should let go. But, one, when, but only when you're confident to let go. And so a young man comes, I want to say and I want to find out what confidence do I have to give up the shepherding of the heart of my child to the gospel, to you, please. And you know what I want to do? I, I don't, look, I'm not out to just be the cosmic killjoy of any guy and my daughter, who, any guy who comes to the house. I, I don't want to do that. The guy may not be, you know, a guy can only be where a guy is. Why he is where he is is everything. Is he there? Is he unaware of these things because he knows he is and he wants to be unaware of them? Or is he unaware of these things because where he's at. But he's teachable. If he's teachable, I want to say, can I walk with you in a way so that someday I can be confident in what you are and what you do with those in your household? And so, so to me, a single man who lives, looking at a single man who lives out with roommates, oh, how that guy is in that household to me is, is very important as a Christian father. And I know you, you, if you're a single man, you think oftentimes of just the girl. That girl someday. That girl someday. You know what? You need to think about her father. If she's got a godly Christian man for a father, you need to think about that man. Am I living right now in a way that gives him confidence to release her? And you know what? If, if you're not convinced of that, get a man in the church, an older man in the church. Go to that man and say... Disciple me. Lead me in Christ so that I know how to be the man that would make you confidently release. In fact, I want you to be so confident that you would say, you know, it's better if she actually goes and lives under you and not me. That would be a day in which Jesus Christ and the gospel would be greatly magnified. I want my daughter to flourish under another man's heart for Jesus Christ. And I don't want him to be taking his training wheels off on his first wedding day to try that. Does that make sense? So guys, get the training wheels off now. And ride and make a mess and get scraped up and banged up, but do it now. Whether you're at home or whether you've got roommates. And I want you to consider the cost in doing this. I know that um, if, if you're sensing, wow, this, this actually requires time. Yeah, you know what relationships do? They do, they take time. And if you are living in such a way where you, your life is very busy, I, I don't 
think there's probably any of us who would say that, you know, yeah, I'm not a very busy person. I think we all feel like we're pretty busy doing the things that we do. And the first thing you can think in this is, oh my goodness, this actually takes a lot of time. I mean, I actually have to be there in the house around these people, my parents, my sister, my brother, my, my roommates. I got to actually be there with them. I actually have to plan. You know, they're busy. They're going 100 different miles an hour or different directions too. And, and how are we going to, we've got to actually plan this. We have to be intentional about this. I, that's a pretty high price to pay. I don't know. You know, it just might be easier for me to, 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 to not worry about it right now. Guys, I, wanna, I want you to think about, yeah, there's a price to pay. There's a cost involved now. And I want you to know that the price required now to discipline yourself to do it, you can pay that now. You can pay it. But let me tell you about the price you can't pay. You cannot pay the price someday of your wife coming home and saying, I don't want to live with you anymore. Or waking up and you find your daughter ran away because she cannot stand to be under you. You cannot pay that price. But you can pay the price now to figure out how to get four knuckleheads under our roof together and hang out once every other week to care for one another in the gospel. A way to be home with your family, with your parents, with your sister, to be with that one under your roof that you get the most tension with. To bring the gospel to bear there. Be the man and do it now. Pay the price now. Yeah, there's a pain to pay that now. I know that. But there's a pain that you can live with. You can live with the pain of discipline now. But you can't live with the pain of regret later. And you get one of those two pains in life. So which do you want? Do you want the pain of discipline? Or do you want the pain of regret? So be with your roommates. Be with those in your household. Come alongside dad. Come alongside your roommates. Come alongside your brothers and sisters. And take gospel ownership as you shepherd your own heart to God in this word. I'll tell you my observation when, when I first came to what was then East Valley Bible Church Tempe. Um, all we had left were young single men who were forced to step into um, leadership roles because all of the leadership vacated. All of them did. Every week you came to church at East Valley Bible Church in Tempe only to find out that your small group leader left or that there is now nobody to run the children's ministry in your area and what are we going to do? And the young men in this church said, I, I love what God is doing in this church, and I'll step in. And the dike had massive holes everywhere, and it was flooding. And guys were standing and going like this, looking around for help. And we started thinking about this kind of thing, and it was the thing that was screaming at us was, we need more men in the ministries! You know what? These guys who were, had their fingers in the dikes, you know what they were doing? They were in their first, second, third year of marriage, and they were on their first child, 
And they were doing everything they could to keep the church from going to the bottom. And we started talking about these things, and we found that, you know what, there's just going to be a whole lot of leakage going on for a while in ministries. Because we don't want to skip over the heart, and we don't want to skip over the home. So guys, just get used to ministries being sloppy, and you're just going to feel the need for leadership and ministries screaming at you all the time. And it's okay. Be home. Shepherd your family. Pay that price now. You can pay that price. We as a church will not be able to pay the price later if you don't. And by God's grace, five years later or so, we see young men who have now been married about seven or eight years with now two or three kids. And it's really fun to watch what's going on. And we desperately need you older men. Guys, I mean, we need you. Not because you have been flawless examples of this. I don't know what you've been, but you've been around the block long enough to know. And you've walked this path. You've seen it, and you've seen the price paid for this kind of thing. And um, so anyway, I want you to just be encouraged in that. Yeah. All right. Why don't we do this? Do you guys have any questions or comments on that or thoughts? Yes, John. Um, Great question. Did you hear the question? It's a great question. I would say there is, um, there would be absolutely nothing wrong with encouraging that. Must he? No. Could there be really some good things that come out of that? Yes. Does this mean that the only way a single man will ever be an effective husband is if he lives with roommates before? No. But it could be a really good thing. If he doesn't, I think he's got to find at least somebody that he is looking, he needs to be making sure that he's got relationships somewhere in which he's able to really shepherd them with the gospel and things like that. Does that make sense? Um, so no, it's not a command, it's not a must. I think it's a good advice, I think it's a good thing to consider. But each case should be taken on its own. Other thoughts or questions? Micah. I know some girls who, <clears throat> single gals in the church who all live together and um, they are very intentional about their relationships with each other and they have roommate meetings, um, I think every other Sunday in the morning and they just talk about how are things going. So they, they're intentional in a spontaneous way and they're intentional in a planned, organized way in which they can uh, be able to address whatever they need to address in one another. Um, Wow, that, that's, that's good practice. That's great practice. Um, so, any other thoughts? Yes, at the back of them? Yes, we did not. Because I knew it was going to go long today. I'll let you read through your disciplines <laughs> and rehearse them to yourself on your own. Let's do this. Let's, let's take about a, a good half hour of some small group time. Um, one of the groups can stay in here. Um, John, would you be willing to do that?
Okay, John and Tom's 